Well, it's happening. It's happening right now. It's happening all over the world. People are gathering in settings like this to remember why Jesus came, to remember what he was born to do. All over the world, people are gathering and remembering that for centuries, God's people waited for the coming of Jesus with deep longing and anticipation. And we're asking the question, why? Why was that? Why was it worth waiting so long? Why were we looking so forward to his birth? That's what the season of Advent is all about. Today is the first Sunday in Advent. And uh, over this Advent season, we'll be looking at texts from Mark's gospel. The past few years, we've looked at texts from all the other gospels. We'll draw on Mark's gospel this year. And so today we're going to listen as Mark says to us through the Holy Spirit, you remember that moment your hearts have been longing for? It's here. Today's scripture reading is, is uh, pretty brief, so I'm going to read it myself today. This is from the Gospel of Mark, the first three verses. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment and pray. Lord Jesus, cause our hearts today to want more deeply than ever before things that are good. Stir up in us longings that cannot be satisfied by anything less than what is purely good and purely just and purely righteous and purely beautiful and merciful. Make us long so deeply for so much that the only thing that could satisfy our hearts is your rule forever. We pray in your name. Amen. So think of something that you're waiting for with anticipation, with deep longing. You're waiting for something that would bring health instead of sickness, instead of death, peace instead of constant anxiety, constant sense of being under siege and having to do battle just to get through ordinary life, something that would enable relationships to be restored that are right now disrupted by isolation and distance and even by something as simple as not being able to see the happiest part of somebody's face. I'm thinking of a coronavirus vaccine, right? It's something we're waiting for. It's worth waiting a long time for it. We hope we don't have to wait long, but if we do, it's worth it, right? And we aren't just halfway hoping it'll come. There is deep longing attached to this because there is so much broken about our world right now, physical health, financial impacts, of the COVID-19 crisis, relationships that are really under tension 
because we can't spend time together the way that we want to. Even our sense of spiritual community is disrupted. When's the last time you got to meet together with a a group of Christians and put your hands on each other and hug each other and, and, and give handshakes and when someone starts to cry because it's just all too much, you don't have to stand awkwardly there wishing you could be the kind of spiritual community that expresses love in these tender ways. The coronavirus vaccine will, in some important ways, help us to enjoy spiritual community more fully. All of these things are broken, and they all need to be restored, and that's why we're, we're just waiting with deep longing and looking forward to this day. My point is not, of course, that a coronavirus vaccine is a miracle cure that puts everything right in the world. Even after a vaccine, people will still be lonely. Isolation was here before this virus, and it will be here after the virus. This is not a miracle cure that will make everything right. The point is that in a world where so many things are broken, our hearts are always longing for this kind of change. We're always longing for something very powerful and good to happen, to fix what is wrong with our world. Now, here's a second problem. It's not just our world that's broken. Our hearts are broken, too. And so we have a tendency to look in the wrong places for the thing that's going to put our world right. The word gospel means good news. Mark 1.1 says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Gospel is good news. Here is good news for you and for me today. Jesus came to satisfy the deepest and truest longings of the human heart. If God's people had to wait a long time for Jesus, it was worth it. If we looked forward to His coming, if we looked forward to His second coming, with deep longing and anticipation. It is because He is worth it. He came to satisfy the deepest and truest longings of every human heart. Today I want us to break that down in terms of seeing the backgrounds of these first three verses of Mark's gospel. How would a first century Roman citizen hear these words? What would it say to them about their deepest longings? How would first-century Jewish people have heard these words? What would it say to them about their deepest longings? We'll start here with the longing for peace. If you lived in Rome in the first century, Mark's gospel, by the way, is a reflection of the preaching of the gospel in Rome in the first century by the apostle Peter. Mark was one of Peter's disciples, longer name, John Mark. And Mark wrote down what Peter preached. Here's a summary of the things I've heard Peter preaching throughout the city of Rome. And so Peter's speaking language that Roman citizens would understand. He is speaking to the longings of their heart. Mark is his disciple, and he's learned how to speak that language. And the Holy Spirit inspires Mark to write this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. How do we know that would speak to deep longings of a Roman citizen? Well, here's one way we know it. Um, 
there's, there's kind of an advantage of being a, a nerd with a PhD and getting to preach, and you get to dig into some fun stuff. This is a very poor p- photograph. There aren't many good ones in existence that I can find. A black and white photograph of a tablet discovered in uh, modern-day Turkey, a city that in ancient times was a Greek city, and uh, it was called Prien. And this is an inscription written down in, in the year 9 B.C., just before the birth of Jesus. And this inscription in Greek is basically making the case that we need to change our calendars because something big just happened. So it's recording an official motion made by the rulers of the city. And it reads something like this in English. Angela already translated a bit for us from Spanish to English, so we, uh, we won't mess with the Greek this morning. Here's what it says, the Prien inscription. Goddess Providence has given us Augustus. Caesar Augustus is how we would know him. Sending him as a savior that he might end war and arrange all things. Remember, we're talking about this deep longing for peace. You hear it reflected there. Something has happened. A ruler has been born, a savior. His name is Augustus. And he has come to fulfill this deep longing we all have for an end to war, a longing for peace. And he's come to arrange all things. He's come to be the governor who could could govern every detail of our lives in such a way that peace and prosperity would expand to the whole world world. And here's what the next part of that inscription says. The birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the good tidings for the world. The world is broken, and we want peace. We have this deep longing for someone to come who can arrange all things in a way that good begins to abound for the whole world. And we long to worship the kind of person who could bring that kind of peace. These citizens of the Roman Empire, nine years, right, 9 B.C. Now, trust me on the math, Jesus was born around 4 B.C. Some mistakes made centuries later. So about five years before the birth of Jesus is when Roman citizens had this to say, we are longing to worship someone who will put an end to war, and who will bring good tidings to the whole world. And when we use this kind of language, the beginning of the good tidings, and the the word there in Greek is, is the word we translate gospel in English. When, When we as Roman citizens in the first century say, we can't wait for the beginning of the gospel, It's because we're deeply longing for someone to bring peace into our broken world. And Mark chooses to begin his gospel with this language, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark is speaking the heart language of first century Roman citizens, people who want to hear the beginning of the gospel, good news, that war can be ended and peace can come, good news. That that longing to worship someone who would rule the world in this way. That Jesus has come to fulfill that deepest longing. 
Notice what's happening here. That the gospel, this message about Jesus, is affirming these deep longings of the human heart and challenging them at the same time. It's affirming it and saying, hey, first century Rome, we're going to speak your language. The beginning of the good news about a deity who's also a human, (laughs) right? We're telling that true story. Augustus, he's the counterfeit. But we're telling you that desire is right and proper. It is okay to long for these things. But the human heart is broken. We look in the wrong places to satisfy those longings. And so Mark's gospel is going to say to the first century Roman, hey, those longings are good. They are true. But they are fulfilled in Jesus, not in Augustus. They're not fulfilled in someone who was a human and later in his life began to be called a God. They're fulfilled in someone who has always been the Son of God and who became human. His name is Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. Don't look to that human ruler to fulfill these longings. The longings are good. It is right to want to worship someone like this, but the someone is not Augustus. It's Jesus. And these longings are going to be fulfilled through sacrifice, not through success. If you lived in first century Rome, not just somewhere in the Roman Empire, but remember Peter's preaching is actually in the capital city of Rome, the seat of the empire, the seat of power, the place where all the wealth and all the military might is on greatest display. It's on display throughout the empire, but especially in the city of Rome. And so Mark is writing in the face of this kind of success mentality, a place of power and military might, political intrigue. You do whatever it takes to get on top and stay on top. That's the mentality of the Roman Empire. It was considered an insult to say about someone that uh, they were humble in the Roman Empire. If you wanted to really insult somebody, you would say, that person is humble. If you wanted to really compliment someone, you would say, they love first place. They love being on top. That was the mentality. And now you, and now you open this document, you, you unroll this scroll in the first century, and it says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it implies you need to keep listening until you get all the way to the end. And I'm going to tell you, you won't make it out of chapter 1 until you've heard the word immediately, nine times. Immediately this happened. Then immediately Jesus said that. Then immediately they went over here. And immediately this. And immediately that. Mark is in a hurry to get us somewhere. He spends a 16-chapter gospel. Ten chapters on the first 30 years of Jesus' life. He spends five chapters, six chapters on the last week of Jesus' life. The beginning of the gospel, the good news that's really going to satisfy that deepest longing for peace, for an end to war, 
for prosperity that benefits the whole world, that is not going to be found through getting on top and staying on top. It is found through a Savior who goes to the cross. It is found through sacrifice. It is found through the kind of love that makes you love other people so much that you would let everyone heap their abuses on you so that you can redeem the world. That is a gospel. That is good news. Jesus takes a completely different path from the path that they had in mind in Prien when they wrote that inscription saying, Augustus is on top of the world. He's the mighty one. He's the emperor. He's the commander of all the armies. He might have to, you know, break a few eggs to make an omelet, but he'll bring about peace even if it means destroying a lot of people to get there. Jesus will let himself be destroyed before he will take that path. The Holy Spirit is saying to us today, good news, Jesus came to satisfy the deepest and the truest longings of the human heart. We all want peace. The problem is our hearts are drawn to a counterfeit peace, a peace that's usually laid on the back of human power, human success, human conquest, a rule that's imposed on other people who didn't ask for it in the first place. Jesus instead offers the real thing, peace that's built on sacrifice, on humility, on service, on a love that won't stop no matter what. Well, so much for the Roman way. Is there another longing reflected in the first verses of Mark's gospel? As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. This reflects, if you're a first century Israelite, this need for purity, for purification. Purification from what? Glad you asked. A few things. Purification from sins, the kinds of sins that led our people into exile. If we're first century, first century Jewish people living in Rome or somewhere near Rome, and we're hearing and reading these words for the first time, we're recalling that our people were taken into exile by the Babylonians because of our sins, because we kept looking for God's goodness in all the wrong places, because we kept turning away from him and toward kind of a hodgepodge religion. God, thank you so much for telling us this. We think this much is true, but the other stuff you told us, we don't really like it, so we're going to add a little bit from Babylonian gods and goddesses, and we're going to pick up a little bit over here from the Canaanites, and we're just going to make our own religion because at the end of the day, no one religion has all the truth. So we're going to piece together things. Sounds pretty modern, right? Sounds kind of post-enlightenment. The human heart hasn't changed much. It's still broken. We're still looking in all the wrong places. Well, that led us into exile. We need to be purified from that kind of unfaithfulness to the God who delivered us from Egypt and the God who delivered us from Babylon 
We need to be purified. We need to be purified from pollution, the kind of pollution that comes from compromising God's law. Now, how do we know that how do we know that first century Jewish people would be thinking like this? Hang on, we'll see it in just a moment from the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament. Hey, the thing that led us into exile in the first place was compromising God's commandments. So we're polluted. We've compromised our integrity before him. Something needs to take that away. And then there's shame that results from exile. When your country gets enslaved and, and uprooted from your land and held captive for 70 years in another empire's capital city, Babylon, you become the laughingstock of the nations. And everybody laughs at your God, your religion, your way of life, your family, your skin color, the texture of your hair, the way you speak with an accent. They're making fun of you continually. And you're humiliated. And the way the Old Testament puts that, well, we'll see it in just a moment. So Mark is quoting from several different Scripture passages. Behold, I send an angel before you. Well, the word angel can also be translated messenger. That's, that's what angel is, a messenger, God's messenger. Behold, I send a messenger before you to bring you to the Holy Land. This is God speaking to his people in Exodus chapter 23. And he says, don't rebel against this messenger because he won't pardon your transgression. The implication is, if you won't listen to me and only to me, I will uproot you from the land. Those sins will lead you into exile. They need to be purified. Mark is also drawing on language that we find in the book of Malachi. We saw this last week. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom, you'll see, whom you seek. He'll come back to the temple in a very surprising way, and he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. I am coming to purify my people from the pollution that comes when they compromise my commands. And then... No surprise that Mark is drawing on Isaiah because he tells us that, right? As it is written in Isaiah the prophet. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. I'm highlighting the parts that you find quoted in Mark. And then as you read through Isaiah 40 and you get down to verse 5, hear how this promises that we'll be purified from shame. Because the glory of the Lord, the opposite of shame is glory, honor. The glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh, all humankind, all the, all the people who've been laughing at you and making fun of you during the exile, the glory of the Lord will be seen by all and you'll be purified from the shame are you the kind of person who carries any of this baggage with you? Remembering your faithlessness to God. I found a, a strange piece of paper this week. It kind of rocked my world. My parents came from, um, uh, for, for Thanksgiving. We had this outdoor, beautiful day, outdoor Thanksgiving meal. And, um, you know, we're in that phase of life where every time my parents come, they bring me something. 
from the attic or the barn. They're starting to purge a bit, and they're bringing me this stuff. So I get this notebook full of stuff from when I was in fourth through sixth grade. Great. I want to talk about shame, humiliation, right? Oh, I thought that was good art when I was in the fifth grade. Hmm. Um, well, one of the things I found in there was this little piece of paper saying that I had professed faith in Jesus and became a member of Main Street United Methodist Church in Abbeville, South Carolina when I was 12 years old. I don't remember that. I don't remember that at all. I remember going on a Saturday to rehearse something with the pastor. He was wearing a robe, and he said, stand there and say this when I say that. Okay. If you asked me when I became a Christian, I'd tell you when I was 16 years old. Wait a minute. This, this is when I was 12. What the heck? When I was 12 years old, y'all, I stood in front of people like you, and I said, I will follow Jesus, and I will live the way a follower of Jesus ought to. And then for the next four years, I totally forgot that, and I lived however I darn well pleased. Now, most of you wouldn't have been able to notice it because I made sure to do most of the pleasing behind closed doors and in the dark. But for four years, I totally forgot a promise to be faithful to the king of the universe. You could say, well, you didn't understand the promise you were making. Yeah, it's true. I still made it. You ever done that? Promised to be faithful to somebody and then forgot the promise? Like, like not just broke the promise, but totally forgot you made it. Started living like it didn't even exist. You You long for purity. If you have done that, like I have done that, you long for purity. You long for someone to say, I will take all of that guilt. I will take all of that shame. I will take all of that pollution. I will take it away. And it will be a thing of the past and it will be gone forever. And no paper dragged up from when you were 12 or 22 or 42 will ever pollute you again. It will never make me ashamed of you again. Because this is the beginning of the gospel. It's good news. My people need to be purified, and I have sent a messenger who would prepare the way. His name was John the Baptist. For the one who will purify you, John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water. But Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can take away anything that makes you impure before God and the Holy Spirit can take it away forever again we see the gospel doing two things it's affirming and challenging the longings of the human heart it is saying it is right to want that kind of impurity to be taken away it is right to want a conscience that is clean it is right 
to want to be the kind of person who doesn't have to look back on this history of faithlessness and say, I am doomed forever. It is right to long for those things, but here are the challenges. We look in the wrong places. In Mark's day, the good news of Jesus had been around long enough, several decades, long enough for people to begin to say, you know what? We want everything the prophets promised. We just want it without Jesus. We want to know God. We just don't think we need Jesus to know him. We want everything the scriptures say, but we don't need Jesus to make sense of the scriptures. Can we have the religion we're used to without this Jesus who seems strange and foreign to us? And that's where the gospel pushes back and says, no, you actually can't have that. You can have this deep longing met, this good longing, this healthy longing for purity. You can have it now and forever, perfect purity, but you can only have it through Jesus. And you can only have it through faith instead of fear. The way the Pharisees responded to the exile from Babylon or the, the teachers and rabbis that were the forefathers of who, the people that be, became known as the Pharisees by the time of the New Testament, the way that those teachers and leaders responded to the exile is they said, we do not want to commit that kind of failure again. We see where it led us. And so that fear of failure is going to lead us to do more than God requires of us. If God says build the wall this high, we're going to build it this high. God says fast one day a year, we're going to fast one day a week. God says pray this prayer, we're going to write 50 other prayers like it and pray those too. We're going to do more than God requires. We're going to be holier than God asked anybody to be because we're so afraid of failing. We're so afraid of compromise that we're going to do more than God requires. And where that eventually leads is to fear of outsiders. Well, really, it was living among the non-Jewish nations that got us in that trouble in the first place. And our people, when they came back from Babylon, they brought back too many Babylonian habits with them. So we're going to keep a safe distance from anybody who's religiously suspect. We're living out of fear. I cannot get to know you, let alone love you, because I'm afraid that you might make my God hate me. I'm afraid that you might make me love your God. So I'm living out of fear. Our hearts are drawn to that kind of counterfeit purity that says, I'm so afraid of failing, I'm going to do more than God requires of me. And I'm so afraid of you making me compromise that I'm only going to let a few people inside my little religiously safe bubble. And I'm going to hate everybody else. Jesus offers the real thing. It's not based on fear. It's based on Trusting him, faith, it's based on saying, Jesus, I believe you have a kind of purity for me better than that. I believe you can set me free from fear. 
I believe because I saw it in you, I believe that it's possible to completely love God and still completely love your neighbor, no matter who your neighbor is. That's what I want, Jesus. I want that kind of purity. Will you, will you give it to me because I cannot get it for myself in any other way? What Mark's gospel is telling us is that Jesus came He came to help us understand Google Maps. Getting ready to take a trip. Pop it up on Google Maps. It's probably going to give you more than one way to get there. Right? Oftentimes, one of those ways is pure interstate. Big roads, big expensive roads where you get to go fast and you don't have to mess around with all the slow pokes. No tractors allowed. Right? Eight lanes of pure fruit. <laughs> uninterrupted. Now, this is a fantasy world, right? It's always interrupted. There's always something broke down. And so you're going no faster on the interstate than you would be if you were walking. But, but work with me, right? There's the interstate option, and then there's the uh, back roads option. You can go this way, and you have to go through every little tiny town. You'll avoid all of the sort of modern mess of the interstate. And it'll take longer, but you'll get there. And there might be an accident, but it probably won't snarl up traffic for three hours if it happens. So out of fear, (laughs) I'm going to choose that option. And Google Maps never does this, but imagine if it did. What if it said there's a third way to get there? But you have to go down this road where there's a big sign that says road closed. Don't go here. Nobody has ever survived trying to go this way. That's what the gospel does for us. The way of the Romans, the interstate, power, wealth, might, get out of my way. If a human political leader or economic structure promises you peace, you should believe them. Give them your whole heart. They are the real gods in this world. That's one way. The way of the Pharisees. God's word plus our rules is safer than God's word plus Jesus. So let's play it safe. Let's not give our hearts to Jesus. Because that's scary. Let's play it safe. Let's take the back way. And you know what? If living this fear-based religion that causes us to treat other people as threats, if that is the only way to stay true to God, well, that's that's sad, but that's the price we got to pay. Way of the Romans, way of the Pharisees. But then there's the way of the gospel. And there's a big sign hanging over it that says, road closed. You can't come on this road unless you're willing to let Jesus challenge the brokenness of your heart. It leads to a dead end, literally. It goes to a cross. And once, once you get past that dead end, 
there's more life to be had. The crucified Son of God invites people who are weary of war to find peace through sacrificial love. The crucified Son of God is resurrected, and he invites polluted people of all kinds from every nation to experience a perfect and permanent purity that can come only from him. He promises to fulfill your deepest and truest longings. But it comes at a cost. You've got to be ready to follow him down this road that often looks like it leads nowhere. You've got to be willing to let him challenge the brokenness of your heart. And when you do, you find that knowing Jesus is just the beginning of good news. Not only for you, but for the whole world. Let's take a moment and give thanks together. Jesus, thank you that you don't ask us to tame our hearts. You don't tell us that faith in you means we have to stop wanting things. Faith in you means we stop desiring and we we kind of become these little pets sitting in the corner who do tricks when you ask us to. Faith in you actually means we can want better things than we ever wanted before. And we can want them more passionately and more deeply than we ever wanted them before. And we follow you, then you will fulfill every desire we have that is good and right and true. And one day, you will so change and perfect our hearts to be like your own that we will never want anything that we can't have because all of our desires, all of our wantings will point to wholehearted love for God and love for neighbor. We long for that day. And we thank you for offering us another way and for becoming that way for us. Lead us to yourself. Make us faithful and true. We pray in your name. Amen.